0: Overdraft fees are just the worst. Get up to 200 in fee-free overdraft with the Chime Checking Account. Sign up today at Chime.com slash Goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank NA or Stripe Bank NA. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. A playlist original.
1: Just watch me. The medium is the message.
2: Proof is approved, what kind of proof it's approved? It has
0: no core identity. Mashed potatoes are no gravy,
1: you
2: know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate and I'm Liv and today on the podcast we are honoured to welcome Anime Paul. Ms. Paul has a Bachelor of Laws from the University of Ottawa. She has a Master's of Public Affairs from Princeton. She is a Canadian activist, lawyer and she is now the leader of the Green Party of Canada. Welcome Ms. Paul. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so
2: much for having me and uh, it's always great to be with uh, fellow U of O grads. It's just incredible people that graduate from that law school
1: so that was
0: the first thing actually that we wanted to ask you okay so the first thing we wanted to ask you about as you mentioned we too went to ottawa law for uh ottawa u for law school so uh we have to ask how was law school important in your journey um into politics
2: oh i thought you were just going to end a journey and then i would have told you that uh, i met my (laughs) husband at law school so (laughs) well you know what I, i can still say that because uh, certainly having him in my life and uh, doing the things that, um, that we have done together as a family with our kids uh, absolutely has, has been part of the experience that, ha- that led me into politics. So, um, yeah, I mean, that definitely is the big highlight. That's the, definitely the lead story about my time in law school. But uh, U of O was exceptional preparation for the work that I'm doing now. Uh, One of the reasons I chose to go go to uh, that law school in particular uh, was because uh, not only were we close to all of these uh, public institutions and their opportunities to engage with them, but also because uh, U of O had and still has a great reputation for training uh, people who are interested in non-traditional legal paths. Um, And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do after law school, but I knew pretty early on, I think that it likely wasn't going to be uh, working in a big firm even though I, I summered for a couple of years at, uh, at Blake's in the summer uh, and was a great experience so being at a law school that really understood that and uh, prepared students from that for that from the beginning and presented as a credible pathway was really important and it helped me uh, to feel quite comfortable in taking those kind of risks and in following a non-traditional path so I really credit the law school for that oh and can I give you a fun fact Fun fact, There, uh, in the Green Party of Canada leadership race, there were three University of Ottawa grads running. Out of the eight candidates, three of us had graduated from the University of Ottawa Law School. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. I didn't know there were so many U Ottawa Greens. Oh, yeah. And, and these were all, again, we were not there at the same time. We were all very different ages. But clearly, it's a law school that attracts people who, again, who are very interested in certainly using their legal training, using the skills that you get at law school, but um, are interested in pursuing non-traditional legal paths.
1: I know you've said that you you were interested in politics from a young age, but you wanted to get life experience before entering politics. I want to know, when did you know it was time to to enter politics? and, And why was it the Green Party that you landed with?
2: Uh, i would come back to Canada after having worked uh, abroad for quite a number of years, most um, well, almost exclusively in international affairs in one kind or another. Um, I'd worked as a diplomat and as an advisor at the International Criminal Court and also on the NGO side for a global conflict prevention NGO. And then I had founded um, a social innovation hub for global NGOs uh, in, in Spain. and. Much of that, as you can see, is very non-partisan work. You know, you can't really do that kind of work and at the same time be involved in politics. And of course, I was outside of the country. Um, So when I came back to Canada, uh, I was really excited about the opportunity to finally join a party. Um, I felt ready for it. And I also felt that this was an important time to do that because I really believe that government is going to have such a big role to play in, in the next chapter uh, of, our, of, our, of our, our history as a country. And so I decided that this was the time. Uh, my children also were older. Uh, by then, uh, my partner is, a, is, is also, well, again, he's of O grad. He's an international human rights lawyer and, and very flexible um, with his work. Uh, and so it was a good time for me. And I felt also, most importantly, that I had something to contribute. Uh, I really had learned through my early exposures to politics that if you go into politics uh, too early without really anything to contribute, that it becomes much more of a job or a game, and I never wanted it to be that for me. Um, I chose the Green Party because as much as possible, this is my my hot tip, uh, as much as possible, you really want to Uh, make sure that your your values, your values as a a human being, your private values, the values that you model, you know, with your family and your friends and your children are aligned with your politics. Uh, I think it's got to be the worst feeling in the world to feel like you have to represent policies or positions that really don't align with uh, who you are and what your values are. And so I tried to pick a party that I thought, um, most aligned with with that. And also that really excited me uh, because of of its innovation around public policy.
0: So what we know instinctively about the Green Party because of its name is that it's a party that's really committed to climate issues, but there is often some confusion about its ideology um, and the ideology specifically of the Green Party under your leadership. So can you talk about um, your vision for where the Green Party will fall on the political spectrum?
2: Uh, well, first, uh, in, in terms of our party, our, our, uh, values and principles, uh, are, are shared by global green parties. So we share values with green parties around the world. There are six principles, essentially. Um, they center around things like sustainability, respect for diversity, um, you know, respect for democracy, those kind of values. And those are very foundational for us. Uh, here and and abroad and so that's something that we have in common and it's something that's quite unique in canada um just because you know the parties that are here are very domestic and ours we are domestic but we we have this global network that we're a part of and uh we we uh you know i always reject this this sort of spectrum I- idea you know um, what it, it it's it's really one that just never sat well with me I don't think it sits well with our members either, who really are the ones that, that drive our policies. They're the ones that set our policies. Um, we see ourselves as being attracted to progressive uh, evidence-formed ideas. Um, we start with, uh, with, the, with the, these six core values, uh, and then we say, how can we design a policy that is going to be as, as progressive uh, as possible, that is going to be as evidence-informed as possible? Um, and we also recognize that those ideas come from everywhere. Um, one thing that maybe sets us apart at this moment, and hopefully not forever, uh, is that we, we are ready to give credit to others. We're ready to recognize when other parties have a good idea, when they have a, a piece of legislation uh, that, um, that is worth supporting. Uh, and we're definitely willing to do that. We definitely don't own all the good ideas. So at the moment, uh, if, you know, when I go out and describe the party, I say that it is a party um, that is seeking to be the most progressive, innovative um, policy and evidence-driven uh, party in Canadian politics and diverse party in Canadian politics.
1: I wanna ask you a little bit about climate policy and specifically because of your work as a human rights lawyer, I wanna know whether you'd like to see Canada and maybe since because of your international associations too, would you like to see Canada incorporating more environmental human rights into its policy, which I think some would argue has maybe been a little bit absent in recent years?
2: But we are intending to, to enshr- enshrine the right to a, a clean environment, and we, we are very behind in that there are countries that have done that already we there is a growing global movement uh, for the recognition of ecocide uh, as a as a law that um, that would fall um, within the the um, the mandate of the International Criminal Court. Uh, but certainly we consider we understand that things are interconnected we're a party that you know, even before the pandemic, we, we really tried to present. Um, our policies in a way that emphasize the interconnectedness of things. And so, uh, you know, when you're talking about uh, about the environment uh, and the right to a a healthy environment, uh, it's because other rights are dependent upon that as well. You know, I mean, if you're talking about the right to live in safety and security, that's impossible if you don't have a a, a healthy environment. And so we're always seeking, uh, whether it's through policies, uh, legislation, um, to, to really emphasize uh, that connection. And certainly Canada in, in designing public policy should always be designing them in a way that recognizes that uh, the right to a healthy environment is a fundamental right. The, the United Nations, I believe it was last year or no, no either last year or the year before recognized uh, climate refugees, for instance, as, um, as a, a category. Um, that was that is now a recognized category, a re- recognized class, um, and all of that, you know, comes back to the recognition that um, that the the state of the natural world has an impact uh, on other rights, and and it's, there's a knock on effect.
0: I'm curious how you think our current government's doing um, on its pli- climate policy. If you wouldn't mind uh, giving your opinion about that, mm-hmm. I, I
2: don't mind at all. <laughs> In fact, I was uh, up on the hill. Yesterday, not today. Today, we were talking about um, uh, the you know the the missing COVID benefits, the ones that the missing pieces that are still left. uh, um, But yesterday, we were talking about Bill C12. This is the Net Zero Accountability Act. The um, I guess the so-called, and we were making the point that it it's 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 is simply the latest in in a a, um, a series of of inadequate. Um, climate initiatives, um, that it doesn't provide proper accountability, um, and that uh, it unfortunately in, in this mo- at this moment is being pushed very, very quickly through committee uh, without the, the many, many, many amendments that have been proposed by other parties and also by climate uh, activists uh, even being considered. You know, there's only been about eight hours uh, of committee time dedicated to, to this bill, if you can imagine. Uh, in general, there has been a lot of, of, of discussion about the climate lately with the government. Um, we had all waited for almost six years to hear what their plans were for the climate. Uh, and uh, what we received was really just a lead balloon. I mean, you know, it was, it, was so, it was so disappointing that even a party like ours that is very committed to trying to find a way uh, to join together in a nonpartisan sort of committee of the whole, uh, to tackle the climate emergency. We really felt that we would be doing a disservice to the public and really misleading them to suggest that there was really anything there. Um, so over the last, uh, the last couple of months, a few months, uh, we have seen that um, our target that we have set uh, for reducing greenhouse gases is significantly lower than our international partners. I mean, the lowest of, of all of our major trading partners. Uh, We have seen that Canada continues to be one of the top five worst greenhouse gas emitters per capita in the world. Um, That uh, year on year, over the last six years since we signed the Paris Agreement, our greenhouse gases have increased, and they increased over 3% last year alone. Uh, So we are one of the worst polluters in the world. Uh, We have set some of the weakest targets in the world, and there is absolutely no way that Canada can continue, even if we do all of the other things, Um, if we continue to uh, frack gas, uh, to bring new pipelines online, uh, to approve new oil exploration projects, there is just simply no way that Canada is going to be able to do its fair share. share.
0: Well, you know, as you mentioned, um, Western Canada is very stereotypically, you know, resistant to, uh, to, to these kind of Policy ideas, And I was very interested to find out that your brother actually um, worked on the oil patch. Nice. So I'm curious what your message would be to them and, and how you're going to get them on board uh, to, to your policies.
2: It's such a great question and one that I, I always appreciate the opportunity to answer because I would say uh, I mentioned my brother more than anything to say that that this is a very human thing to me and to our party uh, this is always grounded for us in, in the people, uh, you know, if we're talking about, uh, um, limiting global warming, it's because we want this planet to be a livable place for, for humans and for other life on this planet. Uh, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, a theoretical, um, intellectual exercise for us. Uh, so when we think about, uh, the prairies, when we think about Newfoundland and Labrador, we're really thinking first about the people who live, uh, live in those places. Um, I, am, I have no hesitation uh, and you know sometimes this may be controversial in some circles but I have no hesitation in, in saying that it is important for us to, to thank and, uh, and, and honor and respect uh, the contribution that workers uh, out uh, in those areas have made to creating the country that we all enjoy. You know there's no point in looking back and saying well you know it was all evil and given what has happened. You know, it's, 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 you know, we can't thank them. Um, there's, I don't want to stigmatize uh, those workers. Uh, what I do want to do though, is make sure that they have a future. And the fact of the matter is that uh, the fossil fuel sector by its own admission is in an irreversible decline. Uh, some people say that this is the peak decade for oil. Maybe it's the next decade, but it is an, an irreversible decline that is underway. Uh, and the diversification has not happened. It has not happened in those places. And we have seen, those of us who are old enough, the example of the East Coast, where the fisheries uh, kept going and going and going until they collapsed. And those communities were devastated and displaced and they never got back on their feet again. And so if we're looking to avoid that for workers out in Alberta or Saskatchewan or or Newfoundland, um, Labrador, we need to have a plan now. Uh, And they should be first in line for the very best parts of a green economy, which is estimated uh, to be worth trillions of dollars within the next uh, 10 years. Um, Alberta in particular is such a place for innovation Uh, with green technology. uh, Several of the leading clean tech companies in the the world are based there. It's the leading uh, province in, in, uh, in the country. For solar energy as well, there's tremendous geothermal uh, capacity as well, and the workers in the oil patch, their skills are transferable on day one, even without retraining. And we also know that jobs in the green sector play pay more, so they pay more. They're safer. Um, they have more of a future, and they allow you to do the work without being displaced. So you know, this is where if we were thinking about the workers and not about the companies, uh, we would absolutely be investing. Um, Uh, you know our money and so it it really comes down to the workers and I want them to know that we see them we understand their concerns that we are part of your community and uh, we're just looking to make sure that your community remains intact and has a future
1: so you're running in a very competitive riding in Toronto um, and you'll be running against Marcy Ian are you what is your strategy and what will success look like for you and the Green Party in the next cycle
2: uh, in terms of the strategy, it's the same as in the by-election, uh, just over a longer timeline, which is really to offer the residents of Toronto Centre a chance at, uh, at real representation. Uh, and by that, I mean that, uh, you know, it's a very, it's, it's a tiny riding, but really a microcosm of so many of the issues that we face around the country, just really concentrated. Uh, it is the smallest riding in, in Canada, actually. Uh, but it's the center of the urban indigenous population. Uh, it is um, one of the top 10 least affordable ridings in the entire country. Um, it is the center of the opioid epidemic, one of the two centers of the epidemic in, in Canada as well. Uh, so there's a lot going on in, and it's also a, a riding where about um, 60 or 70% of the, um, the residents are, are, are relatively new Canadians as well. So there's a lot going on uh, in this riding, and what I believe they need is uh, is someone who is willing to speak on their behalf without any restrictions or restraints. Uh, It's very difficult for the member of the the government uh, to be able to say the things that need to be said all the time, particularly if their policies are the problem. Uh, and so for a riding like this one, uh, it really needs someone who is, is going to be able to have the freedom to do that. And so that's what I'm, I'm offering. Someone who is, even as the leader of a party, uh, is prioritizing the riding first. Um, and this is a very green thing. You know, another fun fact, uh, every green who has ever been elected at any level of government in Canada has always been reelected. We have never lost in an election. Once we're elected, we just we just stick. Uh, and it's mostly because our formula, if you want to know it, is really because we we always put uh, our constituents first, always. Um, so we're we're almost like a city councillor, but at what you know, but at the federal level. And so that's my objective, and I think that that's what that riding needs if it's going to get the help that it needs. Um, in terms of our strategy as a party. Uh, I've had the good fortune of living in other countries where Greens have made the breakthrough or living close to countries where Greens have made breakthroughs, whether it's Germany or France um, or at the European level with the uh, European Parliament, uh, where you seem like you're in the wilderness and you're going to be forever. And then all of a sudden, um, you you make that breakthrough. Uh, And a big part of the breakthrough for Greens has historically been at moments of transformation, um, moments of transition. And I believe that the pandemic has really created um, that moment here in Canada, where a lot of people are saying that there's got to be a better way. You know, whether it's uh, in terms of the culture of politics um, and, you know, the lack of collaboration that we see, whether it's in terms of just actually getting stuff done uh, and, not, and not trying to, to game things too, too much. Um, whether it's in terms of the commitments that we're making to complete our social safety net so that we never end up feeling this vulnerable again. We never end up feeling this at risk again. I think people are ready for that. And I think that this could be a chance for us if we do our job. Um, We still have to do our job to make our case uh, to people in Canada. But I, I think that their minds are a little more open than they were in 2019. And I think that's why I did so well in the Toronto Centre uh, by-election as well. I mean, we had three weeks, three weeks, and we couldn't do any of the usual things. We didn't do any door-to-door canvassing. I mean, not one door was knocked on. We didn't have a, a, an office. Um, we were in a hot zone uh, in Toronto, right? And so there was just, there was nothing. There was just what we could do um, by phoning people and me doing interviews in the media, and we only had three weeks. And this is the safest riding, liberal riding in the country. I mean, Bill Morneau won that seat by 35%. 35%. That was the gap between him and and, uh, the uh, the NDP uh, who came in second. Uh, And so the fact that we were able to shrink that from 35% to nine in three weeks and go from 7% uh, to 33%. I mean, that tells you that people were really, really ready for something different. I mean, I don't think it was me. I think it was, they were just ready to try something new.
0: I think it may have been a little bit you. Um, (laughs) um, I just ask you a question um, very quickly before we let you go. Um, I I have to pick up on something that you said, because you mentioned that um, green, Party members, when they're elected, they tend to last at more than one term. And what we know about women in places in in positions of power is that that's not usually the case. In fact, women are continually held to a higher end some might say, I certainly would, an impossible standard. Um, And I know that this is something that you've mentioned, that that you feel an intense pressure to be perfect for the people coming after you. Um, And so I'm just wondering, you know, if you can give us a little bit of insight into some of the struggles that you've faced um, in politics.
2: Yes, everything that you said. (laughs) You know, it it is uh, as someone, the first thing that I did after graduate school was to come back and, and found this, um, this organization, which was the first of its kind at the time, focused on um, not understanding and then also responding to the issue of the underrepresentation of, of women and um, racialized communities and other underrepresented communities in Canadian politics. Uh, and really the reasons that it was so tough for women, this was back in uh, 2001. Uh, and uh, you know, the reason that it was so tough back then, uh, the, the reasons are, are the same now. Uh, they haven't changed very much. Uh, it is still challenging for women to tap into the, uh, the networks that uh, help them uh, to successfully run, whether it's uh, in terms of securing the financing that they need Um, or whether it's securing the volunteers that they need, both of which are equally important. Uh, You know, you can have money, but, you know, without the the labor, uh, you will you will never make it, you know, because you can't really you can never raise enough money to pay for what uh, a couple hundred volunteers uh, can do for you. Uh, So that's a challenge. Um, It continues to be a challenge for women to be selected to run in winnable ridings uh, as well. Uh, you may be able to say we have parity in terms of the number of candidates, but where are they running? And this applies also to uh, people of color and other, you know, um, marginalized uh, communities as well. For a, w- a woman like me, uh, there certainly were very few models to, to, uh, to look up to. Uh, you know, we've only had five women leading a pol- elected to lead a political party with seats in Parliament. Five in the entire history of our, our Federation. Uh, and if you take, uh, subtract myself and Elizabeth, the last time that we had one was in 2003. Uh, so, you know, we have, um, we really at the highest levels of politics, women are still shut out. Uh, and as you said, when women get elected, they're held to this very high standard. And if they don't meet it in any way, they don't win reelection. Uh, So for me, I'm aware of all of those things. I'm aware that um, I'm being, unfortunately, my entire gender is being judged on my performance um, and that my success or failure really will determine how easy it is for the next person uh, to to do this. Uh, That applies to being a a Black person as well and, you know, a Jewish person as well. I mean, these are all firsts. Um, there's, There's no way around it but to acknowledge it and to acknowledge the stress and the strain that it causes. Um, It is is difficult and it's often lonely, uh, but uh, having a sense of why you're doing it is incredibly important. And being able to build your own support network is is absolutely critical. Having my family support, having the support of friends uh, is is really important uh, to do this kind of work because politics is not a a welcoming, friendly place um, yet, yet. But I encourage, and this is why I always encourage, um, you know, people like you (laughs) uh, to consider consider politics because, uh, you know, we can we can complain about it uh, or we can change it. Uh, And we do know that when we get a critical mass of women in national assemblies, uh, the critical mass is around a third, that uh, things change. You know, there's been there have been many empirical studies around the world that shows that the. The Dynamic within uh, assemblies changes when at least a third of the members are women. Uh, so when you know, if women run and run and support each other, then they, um, then they, uh, then they can change things. They can change the culture of politics. And if they change it, then more women run, and it becomes a positive feedback loop. And one day we might actually attract people to politics who are there to contribute to good public policy uh, and. That's the main reason that they're there. Imagine that.
1: <laughs> Anime Paul,
2: thank you so much for
1: being on the podcast.
2: It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, we'll definitely do that uh, part two when we have some more time. You can um, you can interview me during or, or after uh, the next election. I'm sure I will have a million war stories to tell you.
0: <laughs> Sounds good. We you can't wait. We look forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> If you want to keep up with us in between episodes, you can follow us at Just Watch Me Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Send us your thoughts and feelings about the show at Just Watch Me Podcast at gmail.com. And it really helps us if you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. See you next week.